This series takes a somewhat novel approach to nursing education in bringing mainly clinical investigators to the table, but we also explore the nursing perspective on interdisciplinary care, and I met with Ms. Frederica Preston to learn of her perspective on breast cancer care. To begin, Ms. Preston comments on one of the greatest personal challenges in the field, management of the patient with newly diagnosed metastatic disease. I think there's a shock value for a lot of patients, and I think it's harder sometimes for them to kind of gear up for the fight against the disease at that time. It also, I think, depends on where they are in life and how far from their initial diagnosis. I think it's more of a shock value sometimes for people the further out they are. If someone's been disease-free for 10, 15 years and then have a metastasis, I think they can't believe it sometimes. What are some of the things that you've been able to do or say to people that have been helpful to them in this situation? Well, I think if it's a first recurrence or even if it's a second recurrence, right now we have so many more ways of treating patients. We have patients who are living longer and longer with metastatic disease and living full lives with metastatic disease. Sometimes we will connect one patient with another You know, we have patients who are living five years or more with liver metastasis. And I think when you first hear you have liver metastasis, you think it's an immediate death sentence. But if you can, with therapies and with good supportive care, patients certainly can live longer and live full lives. And I think that's really where the direction has to be. Certainly if they're symptomatic, the first thing you want to do is treat the symptoms. What do you see in terms of the spectrum of what goes on within families at this time point? Well, obviously, it depends on the family dynamics of each individual. Most of the time, we see a lot of support. I think for breast cancer patients, more so than any other group of cancer patients, there tends to be a lot of support out there, both with family support, support groups, the media, the Internet. There's a lot out there. And I think that spouses, family members tend to be very supportive at this time. But I think the other thing with women, predominantly if we're talking about women with breast cancer, is to maintain their lifestyle. And for a lot of women, we tend to be the caregiver. And that's a hard position to give up. What do you see in terms of the dynamics where there are minor children involved? And what advice do you give to patients in this situation about talking to their children? Well, it depends on the age of the child. I think children really from about age three have some idea of a difference in the family of what's going on. You know, mom isn't there all the time, or how come mom has no hair, or how come mom and dad are taking turns, and all of a sudden dad's coming with me. And I think it's very important to kind of give the child enough information that they can handle, not to overwhelm them but certainly to take it on their terms. There's a lot of excellent resources out there. Certainly there's child life specialists that we tap into for help. I think if you have daughters who are teenagers, it's very difficult. It's a difficult time because of body image. And so I think at each child's stage of development, and I encourage people to really contact the children's schools. I think that's such an important part of it because very often the child may act as if everything is fine at home, and then, you know, the first teacher meeting, you find out that this formerly very good student is all of a sudden acting out. So I think teachers are a very important part of the whole team when there's children involved. 
I'd like to actually track into what you say to patients in terms of patient education about the potential side effects and risks of various types of therapy. And I want to start out, we're talk, starting out here with metastatic disease. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what you say to patients to expect in terms of hormonal therapy. I guess maybe we can start out talking about the postmenopausal patient. And there, I guess the hormonal agents that are most commonly utilized are the aromatase inhibitors, tamoxifen, and fulvestrin. What do you say to women who are going to be starting on any one of those three therapies? At our center, we were very big believers in formal education for patients, both one-on-one education as well as written education. And I think it's important for people who are on hormonal agents because they're pills that they are taking at home for the most part, and they're going to be the ones in charge of taking it. So I think one of the big things is the compliance issue. I think the other thing to really look into is as far as some of the AIs are the joint and bony type of pains that women can have with these drugs. Sometimes women will assume that they have bone metastasis because they have this new bone pain and they're frightened. And I think that's important. I think we always do get a bone density prior to starting. And those are really the big ones. Some people certainly will have a resurgence of some of the menopausal symptoms, such as hot flashes, vaginal dryness, and we certainly work with them with those symptoms as well. Can you talk a little bit more about the arthralgias that you've seen women have who receive the aromatase inhibitors when they typically start after the patient gets started on treatment and what the patients describe and how you manage it? A lot of the arthralgias that we see involve the wrists and hands. That tends to be the most common site for it. And we really try to manage that sometimes with non-steroidals. But if it's really severe enough, we will change the AI that they're on. And sometimes that works really well. Patients have tried things like orthotics, but it really can be very debilitating, and I think it is an underreported toxicity from the AIs. And again, some of these women may have had a lot of other treatment in the past and think, if this is all I have to deal with, this is good. But I think it is a very underreported side effect from the AIs. Let's talk a little bit about management in the metastatic setting of the patients with HER2-positive disease and specifically the use of trastuzumab or Herceptin. Again, what do you say to patients who are about to start on Herceptins in terms of, you know, what to expect? Well, I think the big thing is that they know that it is a therapy that's going to keep going on. And very often, especially if it's a first recurrence, they're very used to this very defined time where they're going to have their treatment. And now it's changed into a treatment that you are always going to need. And the big thing is the cardiac toxicity, certainly with these women, and that they will need MUGA scans or echoes periodically, that this will be something we will be asking them about, not only in their visits, but the infusion nurses will be asking them. But for the most part, it's a very well-tolerated drug. We have a number of women who come in, get it, and leave. <laughs> you know, they've been on it. It's working for them. It's now one, two, three years And again, that's the type of patient that you really want to connect with another patient who may be on it for the first time. What about chemotherapy and metastatic disease? Maybe we can start out talking a little bit about bevacizumab or Avastin, since that's Mm -hmm. sort of the newest entry and is now often being combined with chemotherapeutic agents. What do you say to patients about bevacizumab? 
Well, again, because it's a newer age, and I think it's very important that we explain to them exactly what it does, because that certainly can help have them understand the side effects a little bit better. One of the big things with patients who may be starting Avastin, and if they need a vascular access device or a port, that's something that we're very careful of, you know, in the timing of certain things that are done. And that's a very important thing, I think, for patients to know, is that they do have to schedule certain procedures based on the timing of receiving the Avastin, such as dental work. I think the big one is if they have any GI pain, any abdominal pain that's new or changed. And those are the really big ones that we tell patients. The other certainly is monitoring the blood pressure and things. I guess what you're referring to is the fact that in general, I think the guideline has been hopefully to have the patient off bevacizumab for six weeks before any type of surgical procedure in terms of wound healing. Right, exactly. I can give you an example. We had a patient who had had a portacath in, and she had it removed because she had completed her adjuvant treatment. And then a few years later, she unfortunately had recurrence, and she needed to have actually two ports put in. She needed one to be removed because it didn't heal, and even waiting the six weeks. But even after waiting the six weeks, there still was not complete healing of the port site. So it's a very big issue, I think, and especially when you want to get people started quickly. I guess another issue with bevacizumab is the question of high blood pressure. What have you observed in terms of that? We really haven't had to put anyone on antihypertensives. You know, usually with chemotherapy, we see the opposite, that a lot of people who are on antihypertensives can come off of it when they're on chemotherapy. But we certainly monitor their blood pressure every time they come in and during the therapy. But we haven't had a problem that someone has had to go on an antihypertensive because of Avastin. And what about quality of life and how people feel? Is it your perception that it doesn't, usually it's being used with chemotherapy, that it's not introducing any new side effects, or do you see any subjective problems with it? We haven't seen any real side effects with the Avastin as a single agent, just taking the other side effects of the chemotherapy away from that. Again, I think it's a very well-tolerated drug, which is nice to be able to tell women that this is a drug with a track record, and it's a well-tolerated drug. There's another thing about bevacizumab, and it really relates to a lot of the different types of new agents out there, which is that at this point in time, the data from the trial that looked at bevacizumab plus paclitaxel shows an advantage in terms of progression-free survival. And obviously, these people are staying on therapy longer without progressing and having to switch therapy. But at this point, the major trial doesn't show an advantage in terms of overall survival. And part of that is a lot of times it takes a few more years before you see it, if you are going to see it. And I'm curious about your perception about how much of a benefit you see it providing to delay having to switch therapy, even if it turns out that the survival won't be any different. How much of an advantage do you think it is to extend the patient's progression-free survival? I personally think it's a huge benefit because I think especially in the metastatic setting, what you are trying to do is to palliate the patient. And the palliation, I think, is primary. The overall survival is obviously a secondary and a gain that you certainly want. 
But if you have progression-free survival, you more times than not are obviously going to have a better quality of life if you're able to decrease the disease and the symptoms that come with it. And so I think in any type of cancer, when you're dealing with metastatic disease, progression-free survival certainly impacts quality of life in a very positive way. You know, I guess one thing that a lot of nurses working in oncology offices back in the infusion room maybe don't see is what happens when that patient comes in and they are progressing. You Mm -hmm. know, their imaging studies are getting worse or their symptoms are getting worse. And I'm sure that must be a very difficult visit with the patient. Well, it is. It's a very hard visit, I think. And sometimes the infusion room nurses may not see the patient for months or years even. So their recall of them is that last they saw them, they had finished treatment, things were great, and they were going to go about their lives, and they don't see them in the follow-up visits. In our center, we're actually on different floors. So a lot of times there is no contact, and then their next contact with them is at a time when they've got progressive disease and they have to restart therapy and they reconnect. We try to use a primary nursing model, and so ideally it is the same nurse treating that patient. But it is very hard, and I think it's hard for the patient, too, to reconnect. There's a lot of psychological issues, I think, that go along there. I think it's the whole idea of patients feeling badly somewhat for the staff as well as for themselves. We've talked about the fact that the bevacizumab, the trial that came out from the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group that was so encouraging, looked at bevacizumab plus paclitaxel. And, of course, there are three taxanes that we have available now, paclitaxel, nabpaclitaxel, or braxane, and docetaxel, and taxotere. And all three of these now are being looked at with bevacizumab. Can you talk a little bit about what you say to patients who are going to begin any one of those three taxanes and how you see them comparing as you utilize them both with bevacizumab and just in general for metastatic disease? Well, I think the choice you make depends on the individual and what comorbidities they have and what past treatment they have had. And I think the taxanes are a wonderful class of drugs that certainly have proven their efficacy. The exciting thing to talk about with the Abraxane is all of the advantages in terms of no need for the premedications, hypersensitivity reactions, the way it's formulated, being albumin-bound in the way that it's given in a shorter period of time. The toxicities tend to be less regarding some of the neuropathies and the neutropenia. So that is a very exciting drug, I think, to tell patients about. How much of an advantage do you think the shorter infusion time is? For patients or nurses? Both, both. I think it's a definite advantage. Our outpatient clinics are seeing more and more patients, and I think, you know, it's been termed, quote-unquote, chair time, but it's at a premium. When I started in oncology, there were no outpatient centers. And now it's very rare that a patient is admitted for chemotherapy. And so the outpatient centers are outgrowing their chair capacity sooner than the last door is put on. So that's a huge, huge advantage. And I think, obviously, for the patients themselves, you're talking about people with metastatic disease, and they don't want to spend their time in the infusion area. Now, the flip side of that is when patients are on oral medication for metastatic disease, if a patient, let's say, is on Zolota, sometimes I wonder if they miss that contact with the infusion staff and the closer, you know, coming in weekly or every two or three weeks. And 
I think that there's pros and cons to both. You mentioned also the fact that uh, steroids and pre-medications for allergic reactions are not used with a nabpaclitaxel. Again, how much of an advantage is that? And what do you see in terms of problems that are caused, particularly by Decadron? I think there's huge problems. I think the problems with insomnia, the problems with weight gain, the problems with feeling edgy, the glucose problems that we see, the GI problems that can be seen. I mean, I think you put someone on these steroids and then you put them on like a Prilosec or Protonic, so you're adding another drug to it. And I just think that steroids are a drug that certainly we give a lot for all different reasons. But I think that they are drugs that certainly come with a huge amount of problems for some patients. For most patients, it's a difficult drug to take. Yeah, I mean, I've seen studies that said that more than 75% of patients getting Decadron have identifiable problems, particularly, as you mentioned, the insomnia and agitation. When you do see insomnia, how many nights does it usually last? Usually with the patients that are getting the steroids around their chemotherapy, it can last anywhere from two to three nights, and that's a pretty big chunk out of someone's treatment. And what we've done, if you're looking at the weekly treatment, we really cut back on the steroids a lot. But again, it's really hard for some patients, if you're a diabetic, to be able to tolerate the steroids in order to get your chemotherapy. To what extent have you used Abraxane, incidentally? Have you had many patients receive it? Oh, yes, we have. You mentioned the fact that there's been some suggestion that maybe when patients do develop peripheral neuropathy problems with the nabpaclitaxel, that it kind of goes away quicker than with paclitaxel. Has that been your observation? It has been, and a lot of these patients have been heavily pretreated. The patients that we currently have on the nabpaclitaxel are patients that have had taxanes in the past. And so a lot of them present with peripheral neuropathies that have been lingering, some lingering for years. And so the fact that they don't get worse, I think, is huge for these patients because it certainly is something that, you know, if you can't button your jacket or if you have a problem putting earrings on or picking things up, it certainly interferes with their quality of life. So if you can give them a drug that's not going to worsen that, or if it does, it's going to be shorter-lived, it really is a benefit. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other chemotherapeutic agents and regimens that you're commonly utilizing in the metastatic setting? And again, what you tell patients to expect? Well, it depends, again, if we use a single agent or a doublet. And that really depends upon how the patient presents. If a patient presents with minimal symptoms or the progression is picked up either through tumor markers and then going to CAT scans and the patient really is asymptomatic. Certainly if they're ER positive, we would try a hormonal route. If they need a chemotherapy, the ideal, I think, would be to go the single agent route. That's better some ways because you are not increasing toxicity by adding another drug. You can also tell which of the drugs work. And by sequencing, you can stay on a drug and get the most bang out of it you can and then move on to another drug. However, if someone comes in and they're very symptomatic, let's say a woman comes in with widespread liver metastasis, you really want to get a quick response. And for that patient, we would tend to put them on a doublet. 
And some of the drugs we use, certainly Taxol, Zalota, we've used Navalbine, Gemzar. We have a woman now who has progressive disease, and she is being retreated after years with cytoxin adriamycin again. And she's getting Zinicard support, but she's on something like her 13th cycle, and she is doing great. So it really depends on the person, and it depends on how they present how significant their symptoms are, but I think it also depends on what their comorbidities are at the time you're going to choose another drug. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach the patients as things move forward and they're becoming resistant to successive multiple systemic agents, and when you start thinking about hospice and how you sort of make that transition? I think this is a huge issue because as wonderful as it is that we have so many new drugs, so many combinations, so many studies, I think along with that comes a resistance almost to intervene with hospice care and palliative care at an earlier than than probably would be best for the patient and their family. We're lucky in that in our particular hospice setting, you can still be on chemotherapy if the intent is palliative. And so that's a nice bridge. We also have a palliative care team that patients obviously don't have to be on hospice, but they can provide the symptom management. Most patients I have found are not surprised when we recommend hospice. I think once they get over the initial shock of it, they're glad for the support. They really are. And it doesn't really come as a surprise to them. And it is a tough conversation. It really is. I think until people have sat there across from a patient who you've been treating for years and years, you can't realize how difficult that conversation is, even though in your heart and in your mind, you know it's the right thing to do. How is it for you to have these kinds of conversations? How do you deal with it personally? The way I deal with it is because I know it's the right thing. And I can really, I just know for that particular patient that this is what they need. And I think once it's out there, again, patients, they know. You're not telling, you know, a patient comes in and they're losing weight, their pain is worse. They know that they're sicker and they know that they need more help. It's also something that you can't do in a vacuum. And so it definitely is something that you need the entire team with whom you work to be on board with. And we are very lucky in that we work in conjunction with our hospice, so we don't lose contact with the patient. They still can come in for visits, and some of us make house calls. Interesting. I think the real take-home message for women with breast cancer with metastatic disease is that years ago, metastatic disease was really basically a death sentence. I mean, if you had metastatic disease, you did not live. And I remember that in early practice. And today, that's not true. And today, women, there are so many thousands and thousands of women out there that have metastatic disease and are living full lives. And I think that really is a take-home message for a lot of our patients. Let's talk a little bit about adjuvant therapy, a very different situation. Mm -hmm. I'll ask you again, maybe to talk a little bit about what the usual sort of psychologic state is of the patient who's coming in for their first visit to consider adjuvant therapy. Well, again, a lot of the patients are in shock because they've done all the right things. You know, it's a woman, but I went for my mammogram. I think all of us have this sort of false belief that if we go for our mammograms and our screening, we're going to be safe. It's sort of like working in oncology. You know, you can't get cancer. And so I think there's a level of disbelief there 
in the beginning. And a lot of times, again, because of the internet and all the information overload, they're so overloaded with things that their friends have told them, their neighbors, that they have pulled off the internet. I think at that point in time, they really need direction. And they need to sit down and really look at all the options, but they need direction at that point in time because it's emotional overload and it's informational overload. Maybe we can track out a little bit about the different kinds of interventions that are used in the adjuvant setting, starting with adjuvant endocrine therapy, which I guess most women end up receiving since most of them have ER-positive tumors. And in postmenopausal women, we've seen a shift towards the use of aromatase inhibitors, and you were talking a little bit about that before, but now you're in a situation where the woman might be taking the drug for five years or more. Mm-hmm. What are some of the issues that come up as you see these women you know, coming back year after year? You mentioned the issue of adherence. What about side effects, adherence, et cetera, and life on endocrine therapy? Again, I think most of the patients that we see do tolerate it well, with the exception of the joint and bony type of pain. Another thing that does come up is what their insurance covers, because that is an issue. They're going to be on a medication for five years, and sometimes that will dictate the choice of the drug that we give. But most of them, as I said, do tolerate it well. They do have to have their bone densities, but we try to encourage all of the women that are on it to do weight-bearing exercises. There's a program called Strong Women, Strong Bodies and strength training exercises that we have at our center that we really do encourage our patients to participate in. And the ones that are on the AIs are probably the ones that need it more than anyone else. Let's talk a little bit about another form of targeted therapy we've been now using for about two years, which is trastuzumab or Herceptin in the HER2 positive patient. Again, what are some of the issues that you go through with patients as they begin that route? When they're receiving it in the adjuvant setting, the typical patient would be someone who would come in and they were HER2 positive and they would receive the dose dense cytoxinadria followed by the taxol with Herceptin. And just like the patients in the metastatic setting, we talk to them about the fact that this is going to be, well, in this setting, there is a defined time limit, the 52 weeks of treatment, but we do tell them about the cardiac side effects. That really is the main one that we stress with them. And obviously, we talk to them about the benefit. Right. Do you find any difficulty in women getting through the year as the time and months go by, or that's not really much of an issue? Well, it's probably, again, one of those underreported issues. You know, it can be difficult to have to be there for every treatment week by week by week. And then obviously you can stretch it out to the three weeks. But most people do not have a problem with that. And I think that they do like coming back and knowing that someone is checking on them because they're still walking on eggshells. And it's very difficult sometimes for patients when they do finish therapy. That's a real hard time because, well, who's going to be watching me? You know, as much as I didn't like coming here every three weeks, at least I knew that the nurses in infusion were seeing me, and then once a month I saw either the NP or my physician, and it's a nice cushion for them. But actually getting there every three weeks is not a real problem. Again, we do not work in a hospital in a city, though. We have parking, and it's not an issue. I think it could be more of an issue if you were paying $40 a day to park in a city situation. Let's talk about the use of adjuvant chemotherapy. Can you talk about the regimens that you're commonly utilizing in your practice? We primarily use the dose-dense cytoxinadriamycin followed by Taxol, with or without Herceptin, depending on their HER2 status. 
Another regimen that's been utilized in the last couple of years has been the so-called TC regimen, docetaxel mm-hmm. cyclophosphamide. Have you utilized that to any extent? We have used that. We certainly have used that, but our primary one is still the dose dense. And I don't know, it could be a regional thing. We're not far from New York. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, that's where dose dense therapy was started at Memorial. Mm-hmm. But I, I hear people talking about TC more in the lower risk patients where they're trying to avoid anthracyclines. Right, exactly. And the risk of cardiac damage. How much of an advantage is that? I mean, obviously, statistically, it's not that common to see the cardiac problems from anthracyclines. But how do patients see that from your point of view? Initially, when we do our teaching with patients, we have a printout that we give them that really has just about any toxicity that you could have. And the teaching is always done by either one of the practice nurses, nurse practitioners, or the pharmacist. And so we go over all the side effects. And when you get to the one about cardiac toxicity, it's pretty daunting for a person to hear that you're going to now give me a drug that could affect my heart. But you tell them the percentages, and you tell them that it's a low risk, and certainly if it's someone who is healthy, which most women with breast cancer, a lot of them are healthy women, then we tell them it's really, you know, on the risk-benefit, it's much more in the benefit column. And I think after a while, it does not seem to be as looming. Initially, they look at it, and yes, it's very daunting. And certainly we do, especially for those going on Herceptin keep a close watch on their MUGA scans, and we teach them what to look for, you know, and to call us. Oh, one issue with the dose-dense regimen, of course, is obviously that they get through the therapy quicker. What have you observed in terms of what that means to patients? What's their level of fatigue when they get dose-dense, and how much of an advantage is it for them to get through quicker? I clearly think it's an advantage for them to get through quicker. And the fatigue is something that is very evident. I think the whole issue of, you know, we've worked with the neutropenia and we give them the growth factor, but a lot of these patients do become anemic. And that's something that we all have to address with this population. Again, because many of these women carry on with working, with caring for families. And so it's very important that they maintain the highest level of functioning that they can. We know from our patterns of care studies that, in fact, the dose-dense acepaclitaxel is the most common regimen that's utilized right now in the higher-risk node-positive patient. A lot of times in the node-negative patient, they'll drop out the taxane and just use AC alone. And that's kind of where this TC regimen came in, replacing the adriamycin with docetaxel. Now, it's been said, or at least the study suggested that maybe, well, certainly, of course, the TC had fewer relapses, which was important to patients, but also their feeling was that it was better tolerated, and particularly they highlighted the GI problems that can be seen with AC. What's your experience with AC versus TC in terms of side effects and tolerability? I think the AC certainly does have a higher emetic potential than the TC. And because of that, again, you have to pre-medicate with more drugs, and the fatigue is certainly greater with the AC. Now, another new trend in looking at these lower-risk patients, the patients with node-negative tumors, is the question of, do they all really need chemotherapy? And there's a lot of controversy about that. 
And one of the tools that's come along to try to help sort through that decision is the Oncotype DX assay, which is used in women who have node-negative ER-positive tumors. Is that something that you're utilizing in your practice? We have utilized it. We don't do it routinely, but we certainly have utilized it. I think it's certainly a very interesting part of all the pieces to put together to see where you go. And there have been extremes of cases that I have heard of where someone with a very small subcentimeter tumor who you would look at and say, well, they don't really probably need chemotherapy, but because of other maybe pathological features go on to have the testing done, and indeed they have a high recurrence score, and so this person all of a sudden now needs chemotherapy, and whereas the opposite can happen as well. So I think in those questionable cases... And it gives, I think, for people that don't need the chemotherapy, because it depends on the person, but a lot of patients will come in and say, you know, hit me with everything you have. (laughs) If it's 12 drugs, I'm going to take 12 drugs. And you have the other patient who says, I don't want anything. Yeah, and you know, it's kind of challenging as an oncology professional to sort of help people be rational and do things that are in their own interest and not things that might harm them. And one of the things that is interesting are these patients, as you say, who want to be treated maybe even if the treatment, like statistically, maybe is going to reduce the recurrence rate 1% or 2%, and therefore 98% of these patients don't even need the treatment, yet they still want it. Do you think that that sort of is a rational mindset? Is this something that's hard for us who don't have cancer to understand, or do you think these people are just acting irrationally out of fear? I think we cannot understand it until we were sitting on that other side of the desk. We all say at work, if any of us got cancer, we would take everything. But then if we were really sitting there, would we do it? I don't think we would. I would hope we would be a little more rational, look at the data and the statistics. But yeah, I mean, I think that there certainly is a group of people who want to have everything, even if it's a 1% advantage. I'm curious what you're observing in terms of the information access that's going on in the patient's now compared to maybe five or ten years ago when the internet wasn't as booming as it is. How has that affected the way oncology has been practiced in your setting? Well, I think, again, breast cancer patients are a unique group in terms of this because there are so many resources for them. They have formed their own informal resources as well as everything on the internet that they have, all their chat rooms and breast support groups on the internet. You don't see that in other types of cancer. And so there's a lot more information passing from person to person. And some of it, I think, is like the child's game of telephone. It can get a little bit misinformation once it gets down the line. But I think today was a perfect example. They came out with in the news today about MRI screening. And that MRI is now the recommendation for high-risk women for screening. And our phones were ringing off the hook. And women who had breast cancer already, women with metastatic disease were calling, am I high risk? Do I need to have this done? And so while I believe in information, I think it's not always reported in a way that gives true and valid information for patients. I think one of the best examples of that is when they report statistics and they are reporting, you know, relative statistics versus absolute. And so patients will call up and I just read about this and it's a 75% chance that it's going to decrease my tumor when it's not. I think one of the other things that is really big is the whole idea of the genetic testing for patients. The whole idea of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing as just another 
piece of available information upon which people will be able to make decisions. And I think a lot of that is really done in the early stage for women, newly diagnosed patients, but patients who may already have been diagnosed with breast cancer or ovarian cancer for their families.